0: You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through chapter 7. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by by Sacred Heart Productions. And now, here's Dr. George covering The Work of God is Indestructible.
1: Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, amen. St. Luke tells us in chapter five that the apostles worked many signs and wonders. He writes, the apostles worked many signs and miracles among the people, And a great number of men and women came to believe in the Lord. The number increased steadily. Many signs and wonders were worked among the people at the hands of the apostles. And we find out that people began to come in from the surrounding villages and from the Judean countryside, bringing those who were ill, the crippled, the blind. And they would fill the streets and set them down on mats in the streets, so that when the apostles walked by, they would have the hopes, particularly of Peter, they mention that his shadow would fall upon them so they could be healed. What power this is. St. Luke says at the end of this brief section, and all of them were cured. And this is a phrase that harkens back to the Gospels when we recall that the people who came to Jesus for healing, that none were turned away, that all of them were healed, The apostles now have this same power. It's an amazing thing that everyone who comes to them is healed. Now, we recall that the Sanhedrin had solemnly warned them not to preach in the name. And tied with their proclamation of the name, of course, are the marvels and wonders that they are working because it is by the power of Jesus, it's through the power and holiness of Jesus that these miracles are being worked. So, St. Luke goes on to say, filled with jealousy, the Sadducees again come forward. And they take them and arrest the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now at night, an angel of the Lord is sent to deliver them. He opens a prison gate, he lets them out, and he gives this command to them from the Lord, go and take up position in the temple and tell the people all about this new life. They did as they were told. They went into the temple at dawn and began to preach. There is a theme that runs really throughout salvation history. We find it in the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New. And the theme is this, that no one can imprison God. No one can imprison the work of God the will of God. No one can stop God's will from being accomplished. So that when his holy servants are put into prison, in the Old Testament the prophets were put down wells. They were put in dungeons. Jesus himself is imprisoned. At the time of the Passion, he was put into the lower level. It was a kind of a dungeon at the base of Caiaphas's house where he had to wait there, where he was waiting for them to to find a way to condemn him to death. And now we have the apostles put in prison. And what happens time and again, God delivers his servants from prison. Now not always are they delivered in a way that we might expect, but it is because God knows his purposes. He knows what he is doing and what he is accomplishing through each event. So in some cases, we have God miraculously liberating or freeing his holy servants in prison in saying that he will protect, he will set us free, he will not allow anything to happen to us. So that, as Jesus himself says, no one can touch a hair on our head when it is God's protection that overshadows us. So they are set free. The only imprisonment that we really have to worry about in this life is imprisonment to sin, imprisonment in death, in eternal death. There is no other kind of imprisonment that we need to fear. And those who are servants of God understand this. That is why it is, in a sense, all equal to them, whether they have to suffer in prison or whether they are freed and sent forth again to proclaim the Gospel. And in this case, that's what the angel does. He sets them free to proclaim the gospel. It is recorded that the angel opens the door of the prison and lets them out. However, the next morning, the Sanhedrin inquires about them. They send someone to the prison to fetch them. And they say that they found the doors locked, but no one inside. And those at the prison, the guards themselves, had no clue what had happened to them. This information comes back to the Sanhedrin. It confounds them. It perplexes them. Scripture records that they wondered what could be happening. Now, God is speaking to them again about his power and the protection that he is giving his apostles. Then St. Luke writes, The man arrived with fresh news. He says, Look, the men that you are imprisoned, they're in the temple again. They're back in the temple precincts proclaiming the name of Jesus, doing the very thing that landed them in prison in the first place. So the Sanhedrin tells them to go and fetch them, but not by force. Why? Because they were afraid of the people. St. Luke writes, for they were afraid that the people might stone them. The The people see the goodness in the works and the proclamation of the apostles just as they saw with John the Baptist, just as they understood with Jesus. People recognize goodness and wisdom. They recognize the kinds of fruits that come from a tree. And look at the fruits of the apostles' works. The people were healed, there was peace, they were renewed in faith, in hope, they were, they were filled with goodness, with happiness, with prosperity and security, not necessarily of an earthly kind, but of a deeper kind. Through these works, they were being led into that land of rest and peace that God had spoken about in the Old Testament, but it wasn't a kind of land that would be filled in this life necessarily. So the fruits are there, and they are afraid of the people, the Sanhedrin. When brought before them, the high priest questions them and says, We gave you a solemn warning not to preach in the name. Now, by reminding the apostles of this, the high priest is, in so many words, declaring them guilty because they have disobeyed a solemn warning given to them by the Sanhedrin. So they are being declared guilty. But he asks them, he says, what do you have to say for yourselves? And why, the high priest asks, do you seem so determined to fix the guilt for this man's death on us. Now what Peter and the Apostles go on to say is this Obedience to God comes before obedience to men. We have to obey God, the Apostles tell the Sanhedrin. Now in saying that they are telling the Sanhedrin that they have received an explicit command from God to proclaim his name, to go forth and to work miracles, to heal the sick the crippled, the blind. Jesus had given this command to them when he was with them, but the angel reiterates God's will for them when he, when he opens the prison door for them. They must obey God. They are declaring to the Sanhedrin that they have received explicit instructions from God himself. This is a warning. God is giving the Sanhedrin a warning when someone who is so fearless in the face of the authority that can condemn them to death by stoning for blasphemy, which is what they're going to try to do. This is what they're going to try to do with Stephen. He never is declared guilty, but they simply pick up stones. They're so enraged that they pick up stones, they drag him outside the city and stone him to death without his even being declared guilty. They are so driven by hatred, by their blindness, and they're so insistent upon destroying the apostles as they had done with Jesus. They wouldn't even listen to reason, not even when Pilate said he could find no guilt in him. What is it that they kept saying? To kill him, to destroy him, to condemn him, crucify him. As we, the people, repeat at the time of the Passion of the Christ on Passion Sunday every year, crucify him, crucify him. Now, when the apostles, by declaring to the Sanhedrin, that they are responsible for Jesus' death. What they are revealing by the power of the Holy Spirit is that call to repentance and conversion that the Holy Spirit speaks in the presence of every single person on the face of the earth. Why? Because we must recognize the sin within us. We must be convinced of our own sin in order to see our need for a Savior. We must see, in a certain sense, that we too shared in the crucifixion of Jesus who died so that we might be forgiven, so that we could receive the forgiveness of sins. He died so that when he asks the Father to forgive us, because it's through our sins that he has suffered and died, the Father will listen to him because he is the just one. He has earned that right to ask for us to be freed, to pay that ransom. But we all have to recognize that. That is why some people, in resisting the grace of faith in Jesus Christ, part of that resistance is tied to the fact that they don't want to see themselves as guilty of sin. They don't want to see themselves in need of a Savior. And so this is what's going on when the apostles go on to declare in the presence of the Sanhedrin that it was the God of our ancestors who raised up Jesus, whom you executed by hanging on a tree. By his own right hand, God has now raised him up to be leader and savior, to give repentance and forgiveness of sins through him to Israel. We are witnesses to this. Again, they're witnessing to the resurrection. We and the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him, this so infuriated the Sanhedrin, St. Luke writes, that they wanted to put them to death. In that moment, being faced with the truth about themselves, because to accept that truth about themselves is to see their own guilt. It is to call them to repentance and to conversion of heart, to seeing things in a new way and to living in a whole new way. So they want to, they want to kill the messengers because they don't want to have to hear this message any longer which is why at the martyrdom of Stephen they begin to stop their ears scripture says they put their hands over their ears and begin shouting and they take him out and kill him it is that sense that we want to close our eyes and shut our ears as the prophet said so that we don't have to allow that word to penetrate our heart what happens next is most interesting a man named Gamaliel, who we find in history, in fact we discover later that he is one of Saul's Saul who becomes Paul. He is one of the teachers, one of the men who taught Saul himself. He was a highly respected rabbi in Israel. He was knowledgeable, but he is respected, we can see from this passage, also because he is a man who loves the truth. He loves the truth and he he reveals that he has Discretion, prudence, that he tries to listen. He tries to be open. He does not want to offend God. He attempts to listen for the voice of God speaking in the events going on around him. He would have been present at the trial of Jesus when he comes before the Sanhedrin. We do not know what Gamaliel's role was. Perhaps he felt compelled to speak up then but remained silent. And in this moment, his conscience. Is speaking and reminding him of how he might have failed previously. Because the voice of our conscience, if we have failed, if we have sinned in the past, remains with us because it's a call to repentance. It's a call also to hope, to doing things differently the next time around. I don't want to do that. That was wrong, what I did. Perhaps he participated in the condemnation of Jesus. Perhaps he did attempt to defend. Jesus, and no one listened to him then. We don't know. But here he is found again speaking up and cautioning his brothers. And what does he say? Men of Israel, be careful. This is what he says to them. Men of Israel, be careful how you deal with these people. Be careful here. Why is he telling them to be careful? Because he knows that God has revealed down through salvation history that the work of God is indestructible. Man cannot prevent God's work from being accomplished. Now there are things sometimes that might look as if they're of God and we find out later they're not. They destruct because they're not in fact of God. There are other things that it takes us a while to recognize that they are of God and we shouldn't be rash in our judgment. We shouldn't be too quick to rush in when we don't know the facts all the time. And he is saying, Be careful. He says, Let us look back. And he's reminding them of a couple of situations that they would have known. They would have occurred within a matter of years, perhaps a few decades. And he recalls them to the minds of his brothers in the Sanhedrin. And he says, Do you remember, of course, what happened with Thutis? He claimed to be someone important. He obviously was a man who had his his own ideology, his own way, and he gathered followers, a number of them, 400 around himself. Now, this man must have been viewed as a rebel among many of the Jews, and they didn't know what to do, how to get rid of him. He says, but remember what happened. He was killed, and all his followers dispersed. Not only was there the disbandment of his followers, But his way of life itself disappeared with him. It was not of God. This is what he is saying. And he says, you recall Judas the Galilean at the time of the census, who attracted crowds of supporters. But he was killed too, and his followers dispersed. It isn't lasting. That which is not of God cannot last. This is why at the end of time, all earthly, all human institutions those that are merely human institutions, they are passing away even now as they are in our midst. In the end, only that which is of God, only that which God has founded and built, will remain. That is why the church is indestructible. The church cannot be destroyed because it is the will of God. It is God's own institution. Christ instituted the church. It is indestructible. In the same way, when the holy servants of God are sent forth, when they are set apart, and when they live and speak with the Holy Spirit in them, those holy servants become indestructible. Yes, they may die. Yes, they may suffer in this life. But their witness, and even the life itself, because they enter into the resurrection at the end, remains indestructible. The works of God, Those which are informed by divine charity last forever. That's why scripture says that there is only faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love, because at the end it is love that remains. Because God is love. So everything that is rooted in, that has as its source, as its means of being carried out, and as its final goal or end or purpose, Anything that is of divine love is indestructible. It lasts forever. So that which we do for God and of God in our lives, in a sense, enters into the heavenly treasury. That which is not will pass away, will be burnt up as so much chaff. Gamaliel understands this. What he also understands is the fact that Jesus, whom Israel thought was a rebel, a sinner, a blasphemer, for which he was crucified. Jesus has died. And what has happened as a result? His followers, which began as a very small and frightened band of people who gathered behind locked doors after his resurrection, all of a sudden are filled with power, with courage. And they go forth proclaiming his name, working miracles in his name, and the result is that the numbers are growing exponentially. A few months after his death, the numbers already had risen to 3,000, and then 5,000 more. This is why St. Luke keeps talking about this throughout Acts of the Apostles, and the numbers steadily increased. It increased by several more thousand. He keeps saying this over and over. This is the result of a man who died, and these are his followers, and look at the works that his followers are performing. And they say they are doing this because he is risen from the dead. He is not dead. Gamaliel says, let us be careful here because there is evidence in their midst that Jesus and his followers are not the same as Thutis and Judas the Galilean and so many others that they have known down through the centuries. This is a wholly different situation. He says, what I suggest, therefore, is that you leave these men alone and let them go. Because, he is saying, God's going to take care of it in the end. He will show us what the truth is. He says, if this enterprise, this movement of theirs, is of human origin, it will break up of its own accord. It will take care of itself in time. And we will not find ourselves sinning against God. Because he goes on to say, if it does, in fact, come from God, you will be unable to destroy them. Take care not to find yourselves fighting against God. Very wise advice. We are not surprised to hear that in early tradition of the church, we are told that Gamaliel became a convert to Christianity, that he was converted. And I believe it is St. John Chrysostom who says that even as he spoke these words, he was already well on his way, that he was already, in a sense, proclaiming the gospel because of his love for the truth and because of the prudence he showed, the discernment he showed, the charity, we can say, that he showed in what he said to his brothers that day. St. Luke goes on to say his advice was accepted. Interestingly, though, he says, they accepted his advice. They called the apostles in because they had sent them out. Gamaliel is careful to have them sent out, not because he wants to speak in the shadows, in the darkness, as the Jews sometimes do. He does this in a preferential kind of way because by removing those whom the Sanhedrin views as a threat, those who, in a sense, unveil the sin, the malice in their hearts, by removing them from that place, Gamaliel is hoping to to more easily open up the hearts of his brothers. That they can hear what he is saying in the safety of this room, not in the presence of those that they hate so much and feel are accusing them, in a sense, by their lives. He removes them so that his brothers can listen in truth, in sincerity. They call the apostles in now, and what does the Sanhedrin do? They accept what Gamaliel says, and then they order them to be flogged. What an amazing moment. It reveals it still, that resistance in their heart, the hatred. It's like, okay, we will accept the advice you have given us. Now we order them to be flogged just to show them who is in charge and to be careful in the future. There's not much repentance of heart yet in the Sanhedrin. They were scourged. To be flogged was to scourge. St. Paul received this multiple times. He tells us in his letter to the Corinthians. He received the 39 lashes because there was a law which, in the age of Moses already, we can read of this in Deuteronomy, where because so many people died from being scourged, that in order to protect the Jews from killing a man through whipping or flogging or scourging, they limited the number to 40. And therefore, the Jews always gave 39 lashes to come in under the law. They wanted to come just in under it, but they gave the full 39, and they gave them fully. According to studies of the shroud of Jesus, scholars say that he was whipped far beyond those 39 lashes. It's like they threw out the law when it came to the passion of the Christ. So they flogged them, they warned them again not to speak in the name, and then they released him. Now how do the apostles go out? Are they now trembling? Are they fearful? Are they saying, we need to be a little more careful? Not at all. They go out filled with joy. They go out glad, glad, that they have had the honor of suffering for the sake of the name. This is because they have the Holy Spirit in them. And St. Luke concludes by saying, every day they went on ceaselessly teaching and proclaiming the good news of Christ Jesus both in the temple and in private houses.
0: Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be continuing The Work of God is Indestructible, and then she will be moving into Deacons in the Early Church. And now, back to Dr. George.
1: Before we leave this question, I want to point out one last thing. We are in an interesting period in history, in the early history of the Church, when there is a transition from the temple to the church itself. Now in the beginning, the temple still exists. Christ himself prophesied the destruction of the temple. In prophesying the destruction of the temple, he was foremost prophesying the destruction of his own body and revealing himself as the definitive temple. But he prophesied the destruction of the temple, which was fulfilled forty years following Jesus' death. In the meanwhile, however, there is this transition The apostles, who are Jews, honor the temple. The temple is a sacred place. Even though the Jews are constantly accusing the servants of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, as talking against the holy place, they accuse them of this. But in fact, they honor it. And they go regularly up to the temple to pray. St. Luke tells us this repeatedly in Acts of the Apostles. But it is in their private homes where they celebrate the Eucharist. If we go back only a couple of chapters, at the end of chapter 2, St. Luke tells us, if you recall, that each day with one heart they regularly went to the temple, but met in their houses for the breaking of the bread. Now, they prayed in the temple, but they could not offer sacrifice in the temple, because God had instituted a new priesthood and a new sacrifice. The old priesthood was passing away, and in fact, with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Jews' priesthood vanished. It disappeared with the temple, because they didn't have a temple to offer sacrifice in. The apostles are the new priests, the new priesthood of Jesus Christ. And they offer the new sacrifice, and the new sacrifice is the Lamb of God. The Levitical priesthood is still offering sacrifices in the temple. They are killing the unblemished lamb and taking the blood and offering it in sacrifice to God. The apostles can't have any part of that because they are the new priests and they have been commanded to offer the new sacrifice. Christ commanded this of them at the Last Supper. And he handed over to them the very sacrifice that man now can offer to God and truly participate in to participate not only in the offering, but in the eating, the consumption of the offering. So the sacrifice, the holy sacrifice of the Mass was being celebrated then in private homes in these years by the priests of the New Covenant and the sacrifice that was being offered is the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. The second question deals with the formation of the diaconate. At the beginning of chapter 6, it's very interesting that St. Luke tells us that the Hellenists made a complaint against the Hebrews in the daily distribution. He's speaking of the daily distribution of bread. And the complaint was that their own widows were being overlooked. Now, when St. Luke refers to the Hellenists, he is referring to the Greek Jews, those Jews who were considered Hellenist because they were born and lived, for the most part, outside Palestine, and they were assimilated into what was virtually the Greek culture at that time. We have to recall that the whole empire, that part of the ancient world, had been conquered by the Greeks under Alexander the Great in the late 4th century. And so for several centuries, the greek culture really permeated throughout so that at the time of christ greek was we can say sort of the common language of the vast empire so it was spoken by many but in palestine there were the palestinian jews and they they strove to remain very closely tied to their heritage in terms of first of all they had the temple they had the holy city of jerusalem they had the temple the priesthood of the temple but they had the Hebrew scriptures. They had the scrolls. Now, when St. Luke calls this group the Hebrews, he is differentiating between what we might call the Greek Jews and the Hebrew Jews, those more closely tied to the Hebrew tradition. In the synagogues that were throughout the land, They were in many, many places, and the larger cities even had several synagogues. The Greeks would go into the synagogue, and when the scriptures were read, it was customary that they be read in the language of the people, the ancient language, which was Hebrew. So the scriptures were read in Hebrew, but as the centuries passed, because we know that Hebrew eventually evolved into Aramaic, that the Palestinian Jews spoke Aramaic, which is a derivative of Hebrew, not exactly the same. And then eventually the peoples, closer to the time of Christ, are speaking Greek. So the people needed to be able to understand what the scriptures were saying, just as we do today. And so what happens is that the sacred scriptures are translated into the vernacular of the people, the language that the people speak. So in these synagogues, in the dispersion, the diaspora, in other words, the areas outline from Palestine where the Greek Jews lived, intermingled with all the other Greeks and so on, and the Greeks called barbarians anybody that was not Greek. That's what they called a barbarian. They considered that person out of touch with a culture to people. But intermixed with all of this we have the Greek Jews. They would have gone into the synagogues in Alexandria, in Egypt, for example. They would have heard the scriptures read in Hebrew, and then someone would have stood up to read them in a translated language, the same scripture, in Greek, so they could understand it. Many of them did not know Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of Palestine. Now, we are in the city of Jerusalem. In the city of Jerusalem, Aramaic was spoken by the Jews. Aramaic is a derivative of Hebrew. The scholars, the scribes, the doctors, the priests, probably knew they were educated in Hebrew. They could read it, they could understand it. They spoke Aramaic. Many of them also spoke Greek because there were so many Greek people. The Greek culture and language had penetrated the entire empire. But in the city, when the prayers were prayed in the temple, they were prayed in Hebrew. Now, in the city of Jerusalem, there would have been a number of synagogues. When we speak of synagogues, they are places of prayer, but there is only one temple. And that temple, the holy place, is in the city of Jerusalem. God was very clear in saying there can only be one temple. He is clear in saying this because He is preparing for His Son. There is only one temple. There is only one heaven. There is only one God. There is only one sacrifice. There is only one priesthood. There's only one everything when God said there can only be one. They could not break this, a law like that without being heretics. So there's one temple, but they had built places in all the cities where people could gather for prayer. They would pray, they would make offerings of prayers, sacrifices in their heart. They could not offer blood sacrifices, only in the temple could they be offered. And they would teach in the synagogues and they would meditate on the prayers and so forth. In the city of Jerusalem, there were separate synagogues for the Greek Jews and for the Hebrews. And the problem here, it's not that they were divided people, because we're speaking here of Christians. So it's Greek Jews who have now converted to Christianity, and the Hebrew Jews who have converted. And they're going to the synagogues to pray morning prayer, evening prayer, and so forth. And what's happening is that they are separate communities by virtue of the different languages they speak. And what's happening is they're supposed to be living in every way as one body of Christ. So the Hellenists go to the apostles and say, our poor are being neglected in the holy city. They don't have the same connections even to the Jewish families. Our poor are being neglected. We need to do something about this. So what the apostles do, the 12 gather and St. Luke tells us that they say, you are absolutely right. But we, as apostles, bishops, we have been entrusted with certain tasks regarding the mysteries of Christ, and so we cannot be those who take up the distribution of food among the poor in the city. So they tell them to choose seven holy men from among themselves, and they will be put in charge of this distribution. Now, in this passage, in verses 1 and also in verses 4, there is a word we find in Greek, diakonia. And that word is translated as distribution or service. The deacons, the seven who are ordained deacons in this scene, are essentially the first deacons of the church. But we must point out, the word deacons is not in this passage. But we get the word deacons, the church derives it from, The word diakonia, which is the Greek word, and it's the word that gives us the English word diaconate, because the men ordained to the diaconate, to the diakonia, are those who have been set apart for service, service to the apostles. They are helpers of the apostles. And so we have a sort of evolution of the diaconate, but its roots are in the actions of the apostles themselves. It's beautiful how in Acts of the Apostles we have the formation, we have the institution of the church, the hierarchy of the church is unfolding according to God's plan through the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes our brothers and sisters in Christ say to us, How do the Catholics get, for example, their hierarchy? How is it that they have three degrees of holy orders? They have the episcopate, which is the bishops, the successors to the apostles the presbyterate the priests who are co-workers with the bishop only the bishop has the fullness of the of the priesthood of sacred orders and then thirdly we have the third degree the diaconate the diaconate is an ordination to service there are only two degrees of ministerial priesthood the bishops and the priests the episcopate and the presbyterate but there are three degrees That third degree is the diaconate. All of these things are unfolding in the New Testament. Now, granted, they had not yet fully been revealed in the Gospels when Jesus was in his public ministry, but he promised to remain with them and to guide them and instruct them and to have all of this unfold, essentially to reject, to give one example, the hierarchy of the church the structure of the church, which is ordained by God from the beginning, one would have to tear out all the pages of your New Testament from Acts of the Apostles to the end. You've got to tear them out of your Bible because it's in there. It's the structure ordained by God for his church. St. Paul writes of this. He speaks of how he is aging, and he needs to lay his hands on others who can be his successors so that the work of Christ can be carried on until he comes again because he may not be around if we carefully read the New Testament, it's already all there. And it's the sacred Word of God who is informing us of this. It's very beautiful. So, among these are, of course, Stephen. Stephen, who is a deacon, is going to be the one martyred in the next chapter. And he is so filled with grace and the Holy Spirit that he too is performing miracles wherever he goes. He's preaching powerfully. So, The apostles pray, St. Luke tells us, and after their prayer, they lay hands on. The imposition of hands, the laying on of hands, is that action through which the Holy Spirit, there's this passing on to another, that share in the spirit, that power. We see this with the prophet Elijah, who gives a share of his spirit and his mission to Elijah, his successor. And so it is through the imposition or the laying on of hands. So they are ordained, and this really, as the Church points out in the Catechism, that the diaconate itself has its origins in the ancient Church, in the early days of the Church.
0: Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering the martyrdom of Stephen. And now. Back to dr george
1: finally we move into question three which is profound we have in this question the speech of stephen which is the longest speech of the many lengthy speeches and acts of the apostles in fact it's one of the longest speeches in scripture It's not longer than jesus's last supper discourse of course but it is lengthy and it is filled with profound wisdom and understanding of salvation history and what God had been revealing all along and what had been recorded in the scriptures. The Sanhedrin is enraged at Stephen, again because, not only because he is proclaiming the gospel in Jesus' name, but because he is working miracles, because he is changing people's lives, because there are many conversions taking place because of Stephen. So what do they do? They bring forward false witnesses, just as they had done with Jesus. Stephen's trial, if we can call it that, was not a fair trial, a just trial. Stephen's trial and all that happens, the false witnesses that are brought before him, his death and his final prayer to the Father, his words to the Father as he dies, very much parallel the trial and the passion and death of Jesus. And it's no accident, because in this first martyr of the Church, Stephen is called the proto-martyr of the Church. He is the first martyr of the Church, and it's no accident that we celebrate the Feast of St. Stephen the day after Christmas. The day after Christmas, already we have a life showing, in a sense, the fulfillment in Jesus and the Holy Spirit of the mystery that was revealed at the birth of Christ already. Very beautiful. So they bring forth false witnesses, and what do they say, just as they did with Jesus, that he is speaking against, he is making speeches against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, is going to destroy this place and alter the traditions that Moses handed down to us. There's always this accusation that they are undermining the traditions, undermining the law, violating the law, speaking against the holy place. They never did understand what Jesus was actually talking about when he said, destroy this holy place. He did not say he would destroy it. They would destroy it. He prophesied that it would be destroyed. But in a sense, he's pointing to himself. Destroy this place, and in three days I will, I will raise it up. What Stephen understands, and profoundly so, is what salvation was pointing to and what was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In a sense, we could say he only indirectly answers the accusations. He doesn't say, well, no, 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 I didn't say that, or you misunderstood. He allows the accusations to stand momentarily while he picks up salvation history and he walks his hearers through the whole of salvation history, essentially, beginning with the patriarchs, Abraham, then through Joseph, then through Moses, then through what God had commanded him, that there must be this tent dwelling, this temple built, and that he must instruct the Israelites to build according to the design, the pattern given on the mountain. That pattern or design is the law, but it's also the building of the temple. And in doing this, Stephen is walking through the whole while, making clear that all of these things were provisional. They were types, they were figures, they were shadows. That when God told Moses to build according to this pattern, it was simply that. It was a pattern. It was a model. Because they didn't yet have the reality. He is showing them, and by the time he gets to the end of his speech, they're going to begin to comprehend it, and we know this because of their anger, that everything that God revealed, while good and true, was temporary it was provisional, it was imperfect, it was insufficient, until the one would come who would fulfill and make perfect and replace all of these shadows and figures and signs with the reality itself. In other words, he is telling them that the temple that they know, the priesthood, the sacrifice that they have, is imperfect. This is why He starts quoting the prophets later on in his speech. He quotes Amos and he quotes Isaiah because he says, God was saying to you way back at the beginning that your sacrifices are displeasing to me. Why were they? Because they were a yet imperfect people. They had an imperfect and provisional priesthood. God said, what I want from you is not sacrifice, blood sacrifice. He said, what I want from you is a circumcised heart. What I want from you is faith. What I want from you is to follow the law. What I want from you is to serve me in holiness and justice. What I want from you is love, is charity. Jesus speaks of this in his teaching when he says, he's reiterating what God had revealed to the prophets and to Moses. He says, mercy is what pleases me, not sacrifice. They didn't have the kind of sacrifice to please God. Jesus provides that, because He is the mercy of the Father. And He is, therefore, the pleasing sacrifice of the Father. This is why Stephen goes back to the patriarchs and he wants them to hear in his reiterating the scriptures. Stephen, many many times over, he is quoting the scriptures. Stephen really knew the scriptures by heart. He quotes extensively from the scriptures in the speech. And by doing this, he wants them to hear, it is Jesus he is speaking of every step of the way. He is reminding them that the Jews have selective memories. He is saying, yes, you would like to think that you understood all along what God was revealing, but I tell you that you did not. We remember what Jesus says to the Jews when he says, you build the sepulchres of the prophets and you decorate the tombs of the upright saying to yourselves, had we lived in our ancestors' day, we would never have joined in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And he says, but your own actions are evidence against you. You are children of the ancestors, so well enough then. Finish the work that your fathers began. He is telling them that they don't understand. Centuries later, the Jews are holding up to, in this case, Stephen, Moses, and saying, he is our founder, you stand against Moses. You are violating the law that was given to Moses. And Stephen is pointing out to them, you have been disobeying Moses all the time. Go back and look at what God revealed through Moses. Just as your ancestors, just as their hearts were hardened against Moses, so also are your hearts now. Because he reminds them of how Israel responded to Moses. They rebelled. They were angry with Moses. They wanted to kill Moses. They didn't want him anymore. He says, all along, all the servants of God, you rejected, you rejected Moses, you didn't want him, you rejected Joseph, you tried to kill him, you sent him into exile. God used all these things for your salvation, but he says, you're doing the same now. They had done the same to Jesus, they are doing the same to Stephen. He reminds him about Abraham, that God had made a promise, but he did not fulfill it. He says, Abraham himself understood that he was a stranger and nomad living in exile virtually he says he did not yet come into the promise that god had made him for god had said leave your country your kindred and your father's house for this country which i shall show you now we notice at the end of this when stephen is being stoned saint paul is standing at a close distance paul saul then would have heard this speech he would have heard this explanation as profound And I think there are even hints of it in the letter to the Hebrews, which St. Paul writes many years later, where he himself speaks of how Abraham, Abraham didn't lay hold of the promise, but none of the patriarchs did. They lived in faith, understanding that that promise they saw in a distance, but they believed that God would fulfill it. Stephen is saying essentially that here. Joseph he speaks of. Joseph is a figure of Jesus. He is hated by his brothers. He is sent into exile. And Jacob, which means Israel, it is Jacob who then sends his sons for food because they're dying from famine. And so it is the Jews who then have to go to Jesus, in this case, so that they do not suffer death from famine. Stephen says that there were supplies in Egypt, so he sent our ancestors there on a first visit. But it's on the second visit that Joseph made himself known to his brothers. The second visit is the New Testament. The first visit is the Old. They go to Egypt and they see him, but they don't recognize him and they don't know who Joseph really is. On the second visit they go, that's when Joseph reveals himself. That's the New Testament. He says, And Pharaoh came to know his origin also. Pharaoh is the world. Then God raises up Moses. Verse 23, At the age of 40, 40 is that completion of an earthly amount of time in which God does something. Moses decided, let us read the name of Jesus in this, because Moses is a figure or type of Jesus. Moses, Jesus, decided to visit his kinsmen, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being ill-treated, he went to his defense and rescued the man by killing the Egyptian. The story is in the book of Exodus. Jesus goes to the defense of his brothers and kills the destroyer, kills the oppressor, kills the one who is slaving his people, his beloved brothers. He kills the destroyer. He thought his brothers, Jesus thought his brothers would realize that through him God would liberate them, but they did not, Stephen says. The next day, when Jesus, Moses, Jesus, came across some of them fighting, he tried to reconcile them and said, Friends, you are brothers. Why are you hurting each other? But the man who was attacking his kinsmen pushed him aside and said, "Who appointed you to be prince over us and judge?" This is exactly what Israel has said to Jesus. "Who appointed you to be ruler over us and judge? Do you intend to kill us too as you killed the Egyptian?" They don't understand the meaning of his power. They don't understand the meaning of his miracles and his actions. They are they are afraid and envious of Jesus, and they do not comprehend the revelation of his power and what it means and what he wants to do for them. So he continues. We have the story of the burning bush. We could take this whole speech passage by passage because it's rich and profound. And God reveals to him right after the scene of the burning bush, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying for help. I have come down to rescue them. This is God talking. God sends his son to rescue them. So the very next line is, so come here. I, the Father says, am sending you into Egypt. What happens is that the very people he has sent to free, to save, to deliver, are angry at him, mumble against him, reject him. This is what is going on, and the entire passage tells us. And it's because of the hardness of the heart, because they don't understand. The reason that Stephen quotes the prophets is because he says, the prophets saw that you never understood. You had the temple but you did not have true worship in spirit and in truth. You had sacrifices, but you did not offer them to God with a circumcised heart. You did not honor God with your sacrifices because you showed no mercy, because you didn't embrace truth. He says the prophets saw this. That's why the prophets kept calling you to repentance and telling you, your sacrifices are not pleasing to God. After Stephen finishes this, he says, And he concludes by saying what God himself revealed in the Old Testament. Yes, build me this temple. But at the same time he said, Do you actually think you can build me a temple? Me a house to live in? Only God can build himself a house. Because he is the divine. He is the eternal. That is why Stephen quotes the prophet Isaiah. When the Lord says through him, With heaven my throne and earth my footstool, What house could you build me, says the Lord? What place for me to rest when all these things were made by me in the first place? We can only take the things of God and offer them back humbly because he's already placed them in our hands. Stephen concludes, you stubborn people with uncircumcised ears and hearts, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors used to do. Can you name a single prophet that your ancestors never persecuted they're so infuriated that they they rush at him they grind their teeth at him stephen looks up in the heavens and he says look i see the heavens opening up and he sees jesus sitting at the right hand of god and he announces this his face looked like the face of an angel saint luke records that even before he begins speaking this speech this address so this is at the end of chapter six that the sanhedrin all looked intently at stephen and his face appeared to them like the face of an angel throughout throughout the whole time he's talking. God is confirming his presence and power in Stephen. This is another thing. We think back to what Gamaliel said. They have to pay attention to things like this. They have to. His face would have been, can we say, transfigured. It would have been radiant. What explanation do they have for this? But what happens is they get angrier and angrier. And when he says he sees God, look, I see the heavens opening and I see God. They were so furious. They rushed at him. They haven't even completed the trial. They have not condemned him as guilty. They rushed at him, grabbed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him to death. And the witnesses, remember, there are false witnesses. St. Luke says, and the witnesses, so evidently he is speaking of those who witnessed against him. The witnesses placed their cloaks at the feet of Saul who is standing nearby, observing this whole thing. Obviously, he's been aware, he's been watching, he's been present. One can only imagine all that his conscience might have been speaking to him in this moment. They stone him to death, and his final prayer is that the prayer is much like Jesus' prayer. He prays it in Jesus and with his spirit. He says, Into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit, the words of Jesus, and he asks God to forgive them as Jesus did, for they know not what they do. Now we ask ourselves, in the end, was his preaching successful or not? It was perfectly, beautifully, eloquently successful. And one could say, but but he was martyred. He was stoned to death. God didn't free him, he didn't rescue him. God chooses the path that will glorify him and that will most quickly and powerfully accomplish his will on earth. Stephen absolutely was successful. As St. Augustine said, if we did not have Stephen's prayer to God, the church would not now have Paul. Paul is a fruit, and God is already showing us that fruit because he stands nearby seeing this, and God is working powerfully in the heart of Paul. Paul is going to end up going through the same thing that Stephen did. And so do all the martyrs to the end of the age. And although not everyone is called to suffer martyrdom or given the grace of a bloody martyrdom, every one of us is called to be a martyr for Christ, for the sake of his name, for the sake of the gospel. It's called an unbloody, a white martyrdom, because we are called to pour out our lives for another. As Jesus says, there is no greater love than for one to give one's life for one's friend. We say, for one's friend? They're my enemies. No, this is the point. The holy servants of God look upon every other person on the face of the earth as a brother, as a sister, as a potential friend of theirs in heaven someday. Stephen certainly saw Saul this way. He certainly saw his false witnesses that way which is why he could, so filled with joy, let us say, pass through his death. He was radiant as he passed through his death. This is why you may have in your own translation that at these words he fell asleep. Some translations say that he died. But this idea is that, first of all, he only falls asleep because he has the power of the resurrection in him. He has the power of the resurrection, so he is just passing through death he will sleep in the Lord, but he will be raised up. There's also this sense that as violent as his death was, it was not violent for one filled with the Holy Spirit. He simply, willingly, voluntarily surrendered his life over to the Lord for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of love, for the sake of others that they might come to know Christ. This is why his death was to him, not a horrible kind of death, as horrible as it was. There is a way in which Jesus, Jesus was filled with love for the Father at every moment that he endured his passion and death, and tender love for us. And even, one might say, John Paul II refers to this in one of his writings, one might even say a certain joy, because he understands the mystery that he is fulfilling, that he is accomplishing. This is why we all in a certain way must keep in our hearts and minds the words of the psalmist of Psalm 108 when he says, my heart is ready, O God, my heart is ready. We hear these words of Jesus in the Passion of the Christ if you have seen that movie, my heart is ready, O God. My heart is ready, my heart is ready. I will sing, I will sing your praise. Awake, my soul, awake, lyre and heart, I will awake the dawn. It's as if our soul becomes that musical instrument, singing that song of love. Our heart is ready for whatever song the Spirit wants to play upon the soul that loves God and that is willing to be a holy servant of the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scripture's Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Please tune in next time while Dr. George continues with Acts of the Apostles. She will be covering the following three topics from Acts chapter 8 through chapter 9, verse 30. Philip in Samaria. Second, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And third, Saul's conversion. For further information, please visit us online at sacredheartproductions.org.